Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the little book of Jude. You can find Jude by starting at the back of the Scriptures, at the back of the New Testament, the very last book of the Bible, the Revelation, and then turn just one book before. There are 22 chapters in Revelation, and there are only 25 verses in Jude. So you'll need to be careful not to pass it and go on to the Joannine epistles. In the next few weeks, we'll be looking together at the little book of Jude. I'll be opening that with you when filling the pulpit in the mornings while our pastor is away. And that'll give something of a continuity as we go through this important and yet late book in the New Testament. Jude's epistle addresses the problems, the problem of church members who on the one hand, have professed the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, but yet then afterwards it becomes apparent that they deny his grace and also his power uh, in their lives and in the lives of God's people. Jude warns us about the train wreck that happens in the life of the church when this broken path is followed. And so it will be my habit in the three or four times we look together at this book to read the whole of the book uh, that we might uh, get the full sweep of the 25 verses. This morning, Lord willing, we'll be looking at just the four verses at the beginning, verses 1 to 4, but I'll read the whole for our edification and blessing. Here, the word of the Lord, inspired and inerrant. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who were called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, 
Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is those or these who cause division. Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy mingled with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks that your word is true and sure. It can be trusted because you have inspired it and that you have delivered it to the saints with purpose. This little book is here as a blessing to your people. We ask, O Heavenly Father, that you would open it to us and that the same Holy Spirit that inspired it would illuminate it in our hearts and minds and lives. Help us, even by this means of grace, to be conformed to the image of your Son, and we will give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever noticed the little book of Jude? This little book right almost at the end of the New Testament is a book which had some trouble, humanly speaking, getting into the Bible. Concerns were expressed by some in the early church over two apparent references in it to the Apocrypha. Uh, Verses 9 and 14 make an allusion to uh, two books which are uh, not of uh, inspired origin, but yet record something of history, uh, the Assumption of Moses on the one hand and the Book of Enoch on the other. Uh, Eusebius, uh, at the end of the 3rd century, beginning of the 4th century, uh, listed this book as one of the questioned ones in his list. But... It was recognized as inspired by the Muratorian canon all the way back in 170 A.D. Uh, The great 
Father of the church Athanasius, in his ministry, used it and recognized it as authoritative. And at the Council of Carthage in 397, it was also listed with the inspired books. Quoted by the church fathers, it was used by Clement of Rome, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and Origen. And all of these are nice little jewels in the crown, as it were, of this particular work. But the decisive thing, you see, is that no small portion of the book is quoted by the Apostle Peter in Second Peter, giving it his apostolic stamp of approval. You see, the church does not make the Bible. It doesn't make canon. God makes canon by sending His Holy Spirit and inspiring human authors. He picks them up and carries them along. He puts pen in hand or words in mouth and they're recorded. And so too, the word which they speak and write is the word infallible and errant of the God who is inspiring them. The Holy Spirit makes the canon and the church merely recognizes the fact that this book has been inspired first by God. Who is the author? Uh, the name Jude is, is a name that you don't, do not find frequently in the New World Testament. We read in verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. But who was Jude? Well, it's a form of the Hebrew name Judah. And it's commonly put in Greek more often in the form Judas. But it's not Judas Iscariot we're talking about here. Rather, Jude in mentioning that he is the brother of James and only the servant of Jesus Christ, is being coy with us. He's being humble. For indeed, he is mentioned in Matthew chapter 13 and in Mark chapter 6 among those half-brothers of, Jude, of Jesus. He is a full brother of James through both Mary and Joseph, but because of the virgin birth, he is only the half-brother of Jesus, and he shows his submission by listing himself merely as the servant of Jesus Christ. The author of this epistle is the full brother of James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, as reflected in the early pages of the book of Acts. To whom was the letter written? This particular letter doesn't give us a precise location or, or a congregational name to which it is addressed. We've lost the envelope, as it were, to the letter in the kind providence of God. But the book is full of, old, full of Old Testament example and illustration and illusion. And so there must be something of the Jewish diaspora out there to be able to appreciate it. It was directed to a general Christian audience, according to the first verse. And therefore, it's readily applicable to us all here at Christ Church in Katy. Why write such a book? 25 verses. What, what prompts pen in hand? Why did the Holy Spirit fill the heart and mouth and pen of Jude in writing a little epistle? Well, he's clearly concerned to warn us. You, don't have, you didn't have to pay attention to the details of what we read as we gave the sermon text reading. You could even just uh, catch a little bit in a verse here and a little bit in a verse there, and you can tell that Jude is sounding the alarm. He's ringing a bell that we too might see something, that we too might be concerned about something that has caught his attention. And he considers it to be an important message to the church. You see, he has sensed and seen something of the beginnings of a rising 
tide or flood of heresy in the church that on the one hand professes to embrace Jesus and the grace of the gospel, but yet on the other hand subverts and undoes the same. Yes, the Bible teaches us here that the church will have trouble in her midst. Yes, the Holy Spirit teaches us here that the church of Jesus Christ is not always a place full of absolute beauty and perfection. You know, it's been a great encouragement to our family to come and to learn that at Christ Church Katy, all the children are above average, just like they are in every other good Presbyterian church. Uh, We all put on a a good shirt or a a good dress or a good tie and we come and we worship the Lord and all looks to be in order. But our Heavenly Father here, through the Holy Spirit, carrying along Jude under inspiration, is teaching us that the church has a mixed multitude dimension to it. And so it catches us as no surprise that there is a problem and a concern. Uh, Jude had seen that some had secretly snuck into the church. They had come professing the name of Jesus, but yet they really didn't trust Jesus with their whole hearts. They came with a caustic or corrupting influence. They had bad doctrine on the one hand, and that led to bad morals on the other. And he's warning here true believers in the church to contend for the faith once delivered, to not let go of the true apostolic doctrine in which they had been instructed, to not lose sight of the grace of God and of the Heavenly Father that gives it, of the Son of God incarnate and who has lived and died, who has been resurrected and ascended for our blessing and benefit, Uh, to not forget the Holy Spirit who has poured out in power that we might have wisdom and know the truth for the truth will set us free. Oh, Jude saw the beginning edge of a different kind of teaching and a different kind of doctrine. Who were these people? Who were these persons? They were those subverting the church that would later in the next century be called the Gnostics. They were the enlightened ones. They were those who knew better than the average Christian sitting in the pew, who knew better than the apostles, who knew better than God himself, so uh, they claimed. Uh, They would take the scriptures and quote them, but twist and turn them into whatever suited their own craft. They were into mixing. Oh, they would take two or three tablespoons of Christianity and mix it with two or three cups full of an Eastern mythology or a Greek philosophy. Uh, They were cooks creating something in their own image which pleased them, and they called it a religion. Some of them wanted to be called Christian. They were eager to be identified with this newly growing, dynamic, and exciting faith, the Christian faith. And so into their mixture they placed a little bit of the true doctrines of Christianity, mixing them with so much error and evil as to corrupt the whole. They drew primarily from Syrian and and from Iranian sources for much of their Eastern mythology, and drawing from the widely accepted and trafficked Greek philosophy of the day, they created a dish and served it up to the church, which corrupted what they believed 
and how they lived. Now, describing Gnostics in any more detail is fairly difficult. Think for a moment. As we heard earlier today, we're coming up soon on a national holiday of July the 4th. If I ask you in front of a television camera to please describe what an American looks like, what would you say? Large or small? Fat or skinny? Rich or poor? What shade of skin? What what tongue do they speak even? What is an American? We instinctively smile and know that that's not such an easy question to answer unless they have their passport out. In the same way, the Gnostics are not so easy to describe except in broad brush. They are those who corrupt the faith by adding other revelations and insights and philosophies to it. And in so doing, they harm the Christian church. If you ask a Gnostic, do you want to be like Jesus? They would say yes. Do you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation? Yes. Do you believe on Him with your whole heart? Yes, they would say. But by those words, they meant something a little different than you and I do. Because you see, with every cup full of Greek philosophy, with every spoonful of Iranian or Syrian mythology that they mixed in the whole, they changed the orientation and meaning of every word. When they said Jesus Christ, they didn't mean what you and I mean. When they said God the Father, they had in mind some concept of a demiurge that spewed out the created order out of his mouth like spitting out so much water. Oh, their belief was very different, but yet they used all our words. And by the time the second century came up, the Gnostic heresy threatened the very life of the church. They encouraged higher knowledge. And one of the ways in which you could gain higher knowledge in some of their teachings was through immoral behavior and activity. Doctrinally corrupt, they also encouraged ethical deviation. And so they would have been a bad influence on your children and on your grandchildren in generations to come. Jude is not dealing with the Gnostics per se. He's dealing with their earlier forebearers. He's in a generation just before the Gnostics come with full force. And so we do well to listen to Jude and to hear and see something of the cutting edge of their false teaching that we might come to appreciate the remedy for them, which God has inspired Verse 1 says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Here Jude teaches us that while believers are blessed in Christ, unbelievers in the church can be a curse to the whole body. And we must therefore contend earnestly for the faith. Here he says in the opening two verses that believers are blessed in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jude here identifies himself as a servant of Christ and not just as his half-brother. If Paul was the least of the apostles, then who is this Jude? Jude is an obscure figure, a lesser-known figure, though he was important enough in order to be 
recognized as one through whom the Holy Spirit could pour out his word. If I quote that great uh, famous Texan of uh, last century, Lloyd Benson, he would turn to to Jude and say, Mr. Jude, you're no Paul of Tarsus. And indeed it's true. He was not such a great man. But isn't it ironic and beautiful that God the Father and the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, poured out the Holy Spirit upon the chosen servant Jude rather than a greater figure in order to battle this heresy. Oh, if he had been, if he had, they had chosen one of the great names, Peter or Paul in the apostolic band, uh, then there would, they would be playing into the, the elitist tendency in hand of the Gnostic teachers. But God chooses Jude, little old Jude, as the one to carry along and inspire, to bring that message of warning and remedy to this false teaching for generations to come. This is a warning to us all. Lest we be tempted to have super Christian heroes on the radio or television or Internet that we will only listen to. We doubtless perhaps all have our favorite uh, preachers of a previous generation or a present one. Uh, somebody we benefit from listening to periodically. Perhaps you listen to a podcast of sermons on a regular basis. That That's fine if they're biblical and sound. But you know, it. don't let your heart be wooed like the Gnostics would try to. Uh, to woo it away from the regular pastoral ministry in your local congregation to some super-Christian who would be more enlightened than the others and lead you by some special knowledge or way to heaven? Oh, your pastor Fred Greco, he knows you and you know him. And that relationship among a brother and brothers and sisters in the faith is the context in which God designs for such special blessing within the life of the church. John Terrell and my roles here are to help and aid and abet in John's ministry, uh, to stand alongside him and keep his arms up so he can go on vacation and can uh, keep busy at General Assembly. But yet, we don't turn away like the Gnostics would from local teaching that sound in biblical and embrace super teachers. We don't do that because, you see, their messages may help at times. But they're no substitute because they don't know you. You and they are completely anonymous one to another. Oh, you might write a letter or an email, but I can tell you this, they don't read it. Somebody on their staff does. And not knowing you, they can never really speak to you personally and touch you in an area of life and heart that you so much need. Oh, God is wise. Christ is a wise king and head of the church. And he uses men like Jude in order to bless his people. Jude writes in verse 1 also, To those who were called, beloved in God the Father, not to the elite, not to the Illuminati, not to those great Christians who are so much better than all the rest. No, he writes to the ordinary believer. He writes for all true believers Jude emphasizes the humble believer sitting on the back pew who needs their God. And so we are taught here that the elitism of the Gnostics, the arrogance which it breeds, is, should not be found among the faithful in the church. 
Jude also knew that true believers are filled with the fruit of the Spirit. And so there is mercy among true believers. There is peace among true believers. There is love multiplied to true believers. The Gnostics are not so. They showed mercy to no one except those few that they would, tr- they would choose to let in on their secret way of climbing the ladder to a greater knowledge and insight of God. Uh, they were not those who spread peace within the church, but rather con- conflict and discord. They did not know true love because they did not know the true God. And so they were a harmful influence within the life of so many congregations. Here, even in the opening verse, Jude is challenging us. Our mercy, peace, and love characteristics, traits which are found not only in this congregation, but also in your life, my friend. As you hold up the mirror of God's Word, Jude forces you to confront the question, are you a merciful person towards others in your community and in your church family? Are you a peaceful person towards your own family and friends and neighbors and fellow believers within the church? And are you one who others would say has a life filled with love? Not bitterness and anger and hatred, not seething and boiling all the time, but rather one whose life is scented with that sweet perfume of love, the love of Christ even, which only the Holy Spirit can bring. Oh, you see, Jude here in his apostolic blessing is encouraging us to see the difference between believers on the one hand and unbelievers on the other. Because, you see, he has a second major point about which to warn us, which is that unbelievers can be a curse to the church. In verse 4, he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed. And he's speaking about local congregations to whom his letter was delivered. You see, congregations are not made up only of Christians. Congregations are made up of believers on the one hand and, and those who are not believers but yet have made a profession of faith which is deemed as credible. Think back when you joined the church. What did you do? You spoke to the elders. You told them of your love of Christ and trust in Him. You told them doubtless that you trusted in Christ alone for your salvation and wanted to walk faithfully in the way that He prescribes by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And so, in joining the church as a communing member, you were allowed to come to the table, along with many others. But did our Lord not warn us that the visible church is a place in which the wheat and tares join uh, together in the same space? Is it not true that a profession of faith verbally is not necessarily, in all cases, a real reflection of the heart of someone? I've met many people who are not Christians truly, who yet had some kind of profession of faith, and yet were almost Christians in truth. And so Jude here is warning us that some have crept into the life of the New Testament church there at the end of that New Testament period uh, that were not truly of Christ and united to him. Oh, doubtless their leadership had listened to their profession and, and as best they could judged it to be credible. But yet, by the way they were speaking and teaching, 
and the way that they were living and misbehaving, they were denying in action all that their words professed. And so they were in the church, but not of the church, which has been a a constant theme down through the pages of Scripture. You see, some believers and unbelievers in that category are destined, Jude tells us, for condemnation. Verse 4 says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people. It's not that all unbelievers are, are this kind of force. There's just a certain subset. Many unbelievers wake up. They wake up under the means of grace, under the preaching of the Word of God. In the middle of a baptism, they see that their sins need to be washed away. And so, in their own hearts, they trust for the first time in Jesus Christ. It may be by a hospital bed when a pastor comes to see them and speaks gospel words of encouragement and comfort, that they should turn and trust in Christ alone through all their difficulty, that their heart seizes upon the Lord by His grace. Oh, it may be in a Sunday school class or over a table of fellowship or a cup of coffee with another believer in the church that they for the first time really hear the gospel and take it to heart. But then there are others here, Jude tells us, who do not get it and never will, who are predestined by God even from the beginning and from before the beginning to be those who would work this great iniquity for the testing of the body. Verse 4 goes on to indicate to us that these kinds of unbelievers pervert faith and morals. Verse 4 says, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And then secondly, denying our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. On the one hand, the good grace of God is turned by the Gnostics and their forebearers into the occasion for license. And not Christian liberty, but unchristian liberty. And rebellion against God and a breaking of the Ten Commandments, which God always means for us to follow because they're a transcript of Christ-like character. On the other hand, there's a denial of Christ. Doubtless a denial of His true and full incarnation. A denial of His perfect life. A denial of His atoning death. A denial of His bodily resurrection and ascension to the throne of God and a denial of His second coming, true and sure. Oh, Gnostic false teaching was a bad doctrine that led to bad living and the corruption of the whole. And so what must Christians do in the face of that streak or strain or flavor or ingredient of evil in their midst? Jude tells us that we must contend for the faith which was once delivered to all the saints. And he appeals in verse 3, not just for the leadership of the church to do that, but for all believers to contend for the faith. Jude is asking you to do nothing other than this, to hold to that creed which you professed earlier in this service. He's asking you to hold to a belief in God the Father and His Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to the basic principles of the gospel and Christian teaching, uh, to not be corrupted in doctrine by evil around or within, and to not be led to bad behavior and bad morals, but rather to always honor Christ, our Master and Lord, and seek to follow in His way.
here, Jude teaches us that there is a faith once delivered. There is a system of doctrine. There is a real theology which is taught by God in His Word and that it matters and that we should care about it and that we should stand for it and fight for it and we should love it because we love God first. And so in this way, in not being led astray by the siren songs and attractions of elite ideas of the Illuminati and the Gnostics, rather instead we sit and rest safely in Jesus, the true Master and Lord, the true incarnate Son of God, the one who in living and dying for our sins now is resurrected and watches over us. He lacks no power to care for us. He gives us all the revelation that we need for Christian living. We need nothing else other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the inheritance we have in Him. Stand firmly for the faith, believer. And trusting in Him, we will know the blessing of God. Let us pray. Our most gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jude was used to warn us, and so too, in hearing that warning, we can be safe. We ask, O Lord, that you would keep us wise about all the temptations to compromise around us. Help us not to mix other things with the Christian faith, especially those things which are so untrue. Help us to love Jesus and serve him truly and purely. And we will give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.